and it's been quite interesting, quite a learning curve for me. And I do sometimes wonder whether or not, you know, there's just um, this negative connotation over the word disabled yeah. and whether or not, you know, I actually had an unconscious bias towards that without realising it. Hi, I'm Brooke Melhouse. Welcome to Disabled and Proud, the podcast that does exactly what it says on the tin. Each week, the show highlights an awesome disabled guest speaking about their own disability, why they're proud to be disabled, and why they're proud to be themselves. Vicky, welcome to Disabled and Proud. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good and excited to be joining you. Yeah, I'm excited you're here. This is going to be a really interesting episode, I think. I mean, I say that about every episode because I personally find every episode interesting because I learn something new every single week. So I love that. But this one, I think, will be really, really interesting for sure. So the first question that I like to ask every single guest is, how do you refer to your disability? Yeah, this has been quite interesting for me. So I got um, rheumatoid arthritis and was first diagnosed in 2019, April, so just before the mm-hmm. pandemic. And I was asked this question and because I took on the role of Shadow Minister for Disabled People in April 2020 yeah. and asked whether or not I define myself as disabled. And at the time, I said that I didn't. And then some people questioned and said, I think that you should do... Um, you know, I think you get a lot more respect in terms of people who are disabled and the, um, the wider community. And I was like, I'm in remission and I'm okay. Um, and then they were like, but you're on medication every day, you know, don't you class it as yeah. that? And actually, I've been on quite a learning curve myself ever since I've been the mm-hmm. Shadow Minister for Disabled People. And I've just met so many fantastic people. And during lockdown, I had to shield and that was the first time yeah. I really, you know, kind of did feel and define myself as a disabled person because mm-hmm. I wasn't able to go out. I wasn't able to do other things that people were able to do. I found it um, yeah. really hard and frustrating. Um, so, you know, now I've kind of changed over the, the time um, and, and it's been quite interesting, quite a learning curve for me. And I do um, sometimes wonder whether or not, you know, there's just um, this negative connotation over the word disabled yeah. and whether or not, you know, I actually had an unconscious bias towards that without realising it mm-hmm. or didn't think, you know, I was as disabled as somebody else. Um, yeah. But actually, you know, I think I think you know something needs to change, and I think this is the reason why stuff like your podcast is fantastic. It's just like say what I'm proud. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting that you like uh, were undecided whether or not you use the term disabled because I think it's always a really fascinating discussion particularly when you're diagnosed with something because I think it's a bit different than a physical disability because I think if it's physical you can see it and there's not really a way around it but when it comes to being diagnosed with something that's like almost un it's, it's, it's hidden or invisible or you ca- the naked eye can't see it it's almost that question of am I disabled enough to say that I'm disabled? And then in that thought process, at what point are you disabled enough to say that you're disabled? And it is such an interesting conversation because it's not the first time that someone has said something like that to me that they didn't know when they were almost like you said, like having an unconscious bias about themselves. And that's that internalized ableism, isn't it? Because you're not, you know, you're not disabled because you can still do things. But actually, as you said, like, you were on medication and you had to take it every day and then you had to shield and 
it's a really fascinating conversation because I think actually what you said about a having this unconscious bias but also this negative bias like more generally is so so true because we do automatically think disabled is bad and a lot of people talk about you know the epistemology of the word and you know it's got dis in front of it and therefore it's bad and I I can understand that argument but equally in the same same vein like it's the word that we've got to do to describe what we are so we either use it or we don't and actually like I quite like saying that I'm disabled I don't think there's a problem with that. And this is why I do what I do. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So interesting. I always usually go on to talk about childhood, but, but for you, your diagnosis was a bit later in life. And I was wondering, what was it like getting a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis? So I didn't really understand very much about rheumatoid arthritis beforehand. I just thought there was um, Mm. osteoarthritis. And for those that don't know, um, rheumatoid arthritis is where your immune system just decides to attack its joints. And that's the reason why you need to take medication to suppress your immune system. And it was Mm -hmm. kind of explained to me beforehand. So before I saw my rheumatologist that there was kind of three different types of arthritis. There's actually not, there's hundreds, but it was explained as the one where you need more sunshine. So I obviously had my fingers crossed that that was the one that I had. There's the osteoarthritis and then the rheumatoid arthritis, so where your body attacks its joints. And uh, I remember when I sat down with the rheumatologist and she went through everything and she said, do you understand? And I said, oh yeah, there's three types. And she was like, no, there's hundreds, but okay, let's (laughs) go with the simplicity of stuff and I um you know you you were asked about has anybody had it in your family and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and I've never known anybody with it and I was I just started crying straight away because I was like oh no and then you look up stuff on the internet and you get quite worried and so forth and you know there's no kind of cure in terms of stuff Mm -hmm. and um but actually over time I've um you know obviously I was very very lucky and when I go on stuff you know kind of getting the diagnosis so early getting into remission you know was absolutely um brilliant and and now I kind of know that it can um be controlled you know I mean I'm in a much Mm. kind of calmer situation but I think the the not knowing and not understanding and one of the things that I've kind of learned over time is that we become the experts in our conditions so I now know so much about rheumatoid arthritis and you know kind of wider arthritis and you know you keep your eye on what might be coming down the line but you also know certain Mm -hmm. things you have to do to look after yourself as well and to keep yourself in a good kind of position so you know I have to look after my weights and make sure I don't put on too much because otherwise that causes other stresses in areas yeah. I need to attempt to try and prioritize exercise which is quite difficult in the job but it also needs to be quite a varied exercise and not just doing mm-hmm. the same things as well as you know ha- having to make sure that you've kind of always got the medication and that you know you don't kind of muck about with that yeah. too much gosh it is quite a lot because I like you just thought arthritis was like oh your joints are a bit creaky because <laughs> like, in my head it's just like oh and I, and I know that this isn't the case but like traditionally when I was younger people who had arthritis tended to be like over the age of 65 70 and that's like all that I could you know figure 
like the idea of other people who are younger having arthritis blew my mind and and after speaking to people you're right there are like hundreds of different types and again that blows my mind because I always think wow like we know so little about disability when it's not our own so like limb difference for example I know loads of stuff about limb difference but talk to me about spina bifida and I've got absolutely zero clue whatsoever like I haven't got a clue (laughs) and that doesn't make you a bad disabled person it just means that it's not necessarily something you know about but it doesn't mean that you can't go out there and and get the research or read about it or speak to people because I think a lot of people are afraid to talk to people with disabilities particularly about their disabilities and don't get me wrong there is a right way and there is a wrong way to go about talking to people but sometimes you just got to have those open conversations to learn because that's what we're all here for at the end of the day is, is to learn and to grow and if you're not learning or growing then there's not really a point you know yeah yeah no absolutely and I you know I'm a kind of person that gets on better in terms of a conversation than I am in terms of just kind of reading stuff and actually yeah there's always more beyond kind of what is in the paperwork as well in terms of what mm-hmm. what different things say yeah interestingly so your job is now let me get this right shadow minister for disabled people yeah now that is a mouthful and what does that mean in like stupid stu- oh my god I can't even get my words out in like super layman's terms yeah and I'd like it to be less of a mouthful and I'd like it to be a minister <laughs> for disabled people <laughs> but we yeah. need a general election for that to happen um so essentially um this role sits in the department for work and pensions but it actually crosses mm-hmm. everywhere so I work with all of my front bench colleagues in terms of yeah us looking towards what we might do if we win the next general election to improve the lives of Mm -hmm. disabled people. And one of the things that was really important to me when I first took on this role was actually to organise a a lot of roadshows and make sure that we engage with disabled people. And it was quite tricky Mm -hmm. because it was right at the start of the pandemic. So we had to do things differently. Perfect timing yeah yeah and so we did a lot of them um well we did all of them online because we couldn't do them in any other way um and and at the time the big thing was you know what what is the government doing you know kind of in covid for disabled people and also what are they not doing so you all know Mm -hmm. their press briefings at the time weren't accessible they didn't have british sign language You know, so I was raising that in Parliament. In fact, one time I went and signed my question in Parliament just to get the point across. If you can't understand what I'm saying, you know, what do you think yeah. it's like for people that rely on British Sign Language, you know? Um, yeah. And so th- those were the issues, you know, the fears over the do not resuscitate notices, the problems with accessing food, PPE, the social care. Mm-hmm. So all of that was raised with me. And I was, I was um, raising that with the government to say, they need to do more about this. And, uh, yeah. you know, a disproportionate number of the deaths were disabled people, as we all know, and the COVID inquiries going on at the moment. And all of this is is coming out. Um, but in opposition, my job is to hold the government to account and say, what are you doing mm-hmm. about this? What are you doing, you know, about the other end? And for me, what what's always um, informed that is making sure that I do have that engagement with disabled people, disabled people's yeah. organisations and some charities, um, because you know 
they're the experts by experience and that's how yeah I learned to know what to go and say yeah and I also think it's very interesting as well that you know your diagnosis comes you you have this job you you don't identify as disabled and then actually like as time's gone on you speak to more people you kind of realize that you do how has your own personal diagnosis impacted your job and how you go about your job yeah um I mean I like to think that I'm you know doing a good job I guess that on on some of the things that I have to be wary about is um it's quite hard to get um your hospital appointments and so forth so when they're in the diary Mm -hmm. They have to be in the diary and prioritised over other stuff yeah. because I only get to see my consultant once a year, but then I see a kind of another person every six months. Like obviously when you're first mm. diagnosed, it's every single month until they get the medication right and you end out in yeah. remission. And then I do try and um, make sure that I get, you know, do exercise and and a varied Mm -hmm. exercise sometimes that does kind of fall by the way but then I'm always trying to kind of revisit that um you know kind of eating a healthy um diet I mean one of the things that's always interesting is whenever I speak to somebody else kind of with rheumatoid arthritis um and particularly Mm -hmm. like certain um charities and organizations like versus arthritis and the National Rheumatoid Arthritis Society ends up being a bit of kind of a counseling session by accident. Conversation. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what is it that you wanted me to do in the role of shadow minister for disabled people yeah. rather than me picking your brains on stuff? Yeah, and that and that as well must be quite difficult to sometimes separate between the two because equally like you want the support for yourself to be like, oh, I kind of want to pick your brain about this. But equally at some point there's there's almost got to be like two caps, hasn't there? Because you've got to switch between the two being like, okay, so this is the personal and I want this information, but equally like what do you want me to do in my role and how can I help you and how can I help like push this issue further forward? And that must be quite difficult to juggle because they're kind of intertwined. Yeah, so I, I'm always kind of focused on, right, you know, what is it that we need to kind of push for? Mm-hmm. It's just that sometimes in the conversation, you know, you can kind of end out chatting and going off and yeah. because people will be like, oh, do you understand this? And it's like, oh, well, I do and blah, blah, blah. And they go, oh, no, well, this is this. And yeah, and that's like, but that's difficult, I think, with, with all conversations, because even when I do this, I we get, I can get so sucked into a conversation and I'm like, I have gone so off course. This is not where I thought it was going to go. <laughs> so I think it's completely natural. But I love how actually you're able to put your work in in such in such a place where actually it benefits other people who are disabled, because obviously that is part and parcel of your role. But equally, like, you're able to help yourself with that as well. Because I think if you're not doing a job where you can't necessarily help yourself and help other people, sometimes it can feel a bit vapid. And that's not to say that every job is vapid. But I I personally, because I work with people, like to see people progress and I like to see things get better. And over time, do you think in this role things have got better? Or is it one of those things where you can't actually judge it? I mean, we've had a Conservative government for the last 13 years and, you mm-hmm. know, any evidence that you look at in any which way mm-hmm. in terms of the impact on disabled people's lives, things have just gotten worse. Depleted. And I, th- I think that actually kind of also in people's psyche, things have gotten mm-hmm. worse as well because, you know, 
one of the things when I first took on the role was trying to find out the details of all of the disabled people's organisations. Um, and I asked questions of the minister. They didn't hold the information. Um, the House of Commons Library is like one of the best libraries in the world. I asked yeah. them for the details. They said, well, here's what we've got. But actually, a lot of them might uh, you know, no longer be in existence. And, mm-hmm. and that was the case. And because local authorities and other organisations have had a lot of their funding cut, one of the areas they've cut is the funding in relation to disabled people's organisations, which actually yeah. cuts the voice of disabled people. Um, and mm. I, th- I think that has been a big problem, as well as we all know, um, you know, the cost of living crisis, but actually the cost of living crisis is far, far bigger for disabled people. You know, in terms of access to buildings, you know, why have we still not moved on from where we, you yeah. know, where we were? It just feels like there's very little progress that's moved forward and I guess kind of one of the only things that I've seen that has been good progress from this government and it was actually a backbencher um, Rosie Cooper that went and put it forward and she was Labour was around the British Sign Language Act but actually beyond yeah. that I can't say that I've seen much good stuff and you know in the pandemic you know that was classic you know I think I asked the Prime Minister like six or seven times about providing um BSL at the press conferences and each mm-hmm. time I was like oh well, I look at it I look at it and it wasn't so difficult to do they were doing it in Scotland and Wales so yeah I just couldn't understand why they wouldn't just do it every time after my question I was like all oh, right it's going to be happening now and then I'm like, yeah, it's still not happening. Like, like it feels deliberate, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you say that because obviously Scotland and uh, um, Wales both had it pretty quick, like no issues. There, there, nothing was, because I remember so clearly watching Nicola Sturgeon do hers and then seeing someone sign. And I always wonder like, and this is very, very trivial of me, but I always wonder like, is it different to sign in different accents? But then I think about that and I'm like, Brooke, that is the blondest comment you have ever made in your entire life. (laughs) But equally, you're right. Like, particularly when you put forward those questions, the prime minister so many times and it was just completely ignored or you were just given lip service. It can feel like actually, even though you said your piece, nothing is being done from that information. And and you're right, disabled people really were impacted very very differently to those who are non-disabled during the pandemic and we look at I think it's COVID deaths every six out of ten were disabled people that's a staggering amount of people when you think about it and then also on top of that we think about the DNRs that were placed on people with learning disabilities and those were involuntary as well which is like astounding because when you think that it's a legal document on someone's you know their file and you can't get it removed that is wild that is ultimately one of the wildest things ever so no wonder you haven't seen the progression because I don't think it's been there no not at all and and actually you know the there are those that relied on British sign language that didn't get extremely important communications but actually yeah. the message that that sent out to the wider disabled community was a negative message it just said mm-hmm. we're not bothered um, and, and it wasn't just about those who relied on British Sign Language. And of course, you know, they were the most excluded by not knowing what was happening in terms yeah. of those, um, you know, really important communications. Like if we think the level of the information we were being told 
we, we were being told that we had to stay in or that you were able to go out, what you could do in terms mm-hmm. of shopping and other things. You know, it was, you know, where you could access different services. You know, it was really yeah. um, hugely important stuff. But actually, it resonates wider in terms of, you know, how other disabled people are feeling at, at that point, which is pretty much just ignored by the government. Which is wild when you think about disabled people are the biggest minority. Like, two and two does not make four. <laughs> what, though? I'm, I'm really intrigued. What made you get into politics? Yeah, so this is quite... This is quite interesting. So if you'd have asked the um, the young me, let's say the 13, 14 year old me, if I'd ever be yeah. an MP in the future, I'd have just absolutely laughed my socks off and never, ever thought that it was for me. And the young 16 year old me didn't actually get any, um, you know, A's to C's. I think it's four and above mm-hmm. now in GCSEs. And there was a wide variety of reasons. You know, I moved about a lot, living in temporary accommodation, kind of didn't really have access to school properly but then I went to college and I did a BTEC in performing arts and whilst (laughs) I was I know and whilst I was there um I did my GCSE English at night school and was encouraged to apply to university now nobody in my family had gone to university before Mm -hmm. so this was quite like a big thing for us and then I went to De Montfort University in Bedford and I did drama and business now, whilst I was there, so it was 1996, I'm giving away my kind of age at the moment, <laughs> um, I um, somebody knocked on my door campaigning for the Labour Party. So I got involved mm-hmm. campaigning for the Labour Party because I wanted to kick out the Tories. I probably wouldn't have classed myself as somebody that knew lots about politics. And I'll come back to that mm-hmm. in, in a second. But then... Um, after the election, so Labour won power, it was fantastic. And then somebody said to me, are you a member of the Labour Party? And I was a bit like, uh, yeah. Like, I didn't know you actually mm-hmm. joined political parties. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll join. And then they told me it costs money. And I was like, oh, I'm a student. I've got no money. Like, yeah. Um, but actually during that process, I got more and more involved over the years in terms of uh, the Labour Party. I was a councillor before I was the AMP. But the thing that I feel really strong about is you might not know how politics work, you know, in yeah. terms of the different systems, but you do know what you think about politics because everything in our lives is political and has a political impact on us. And what we need mm-hmm. to do is is we need to get more people from working class backgrounds, more disabled people actually there and involved in politics because it's it's our lives that other people are making the decisions about and actually yeah. our voices really matter and we have to not be kind of as nervous as we might be about getting involved in that world because we might do things in a slightly different way but it doesn't mean it's the wrong way I love what you just said there about how we might do things differently, but it doesn't mean it's the wrong way because I think a lot of people need to take that on board. Just because you do something differently does not mean that you're doing it the wrong way. And actually, I think there's a lot of creativity and merit to be given in doing things differently because it means that you don't think the same. And actually, particularly when it comes to politics, 
a lot of people can think the same way and that's where we end up in trouble and that's where the country ends up in a pile of absolute crap can I tell you a story oh my god do tell me a story I live for these moments so I was in parliament and we were talking um about youth violence and I did a lot of work in terms of the Youth Violence Commission, and then we were talking about pupil referral units where, um, uh, you mm-hmm. know, kind of kids that are struggling get sent to. And I was kind of saying, um, you know, kind of how I'd get rid of all pupil referral units. Anyway, I was talking to this Conservative MP mm-hmm. and I was saying, oh, I, I, I moved about a lot when I was younger, went to a lot of, sort of different schools. And he was like, oh, father in the forces. <laughs> and I said, no, just weren't really... <laughs> I love that his first thought was that your dad was part of the military. But like, how mind blowing is that, right? Because like in his world, like I'd never mm-hmm. even thought that moving about and that, that anybody would come out with something like that. And he probably not thought that somebody would come out with something like I did. Like just yeah, worlds apart. <laughs> that that in itself is wild because both of you had like the same train of thought but completely completely different places that you're going like you're moving about because you're not necessarily the most fortunate but in his head he's like oh she's moving about because her dad's in the army and he changes bases every couple of years (laughs) oh god it's it's you've got to laugh you do have to laugh because if you don't laugh you'll cry (laughs) so for you getting into politics just seemed like it was something that it was almost like it fell into your lap because obviously someone knocks on your door and it's all very fortuitous and I'm wondering is there a particular piece of advice that you would have given younger version of you who's about to to start her political journey yeah I might have said carry on with your drama stuff (laughs) so I'm just joking joking, absolutely 100% joking no I I think I think that's the probably big thing and actually the big thing that I'd say to um, most young people is believe in yourself. Um, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it feels like there's this certain mold you're supposed to fit in with and actually managing to kind of push yourself to do things, but not necessarily having to do it in the way that it's always happened you know, if we want to yeah. change politics, we need to change, you know, who's there and who's represented. But we, we, we can't just keep saying that everybody's got to feel stuff in a certain way. You know, we yeah. we have to adapt and change um, and we have to make sure that people see and resonate with people like them. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's just not enough of that in terms of politics. So, you know, we, we, you know, in the Labour Party, in terms of working class people, we quite often go, oh, you know, Angie Rayner. Um, and then mm-hmm. you can kind of stop at certain points. There's, there's actually quite a lot more working class people from the Labour Party and stuff. But actually, in terms of disabled people in Parliament, we definitely don't have enough. And actually, in terms of councils as well. And there's just lots of ways of... of going and representing stuff so I guess kind of just being a little bit confident in mm-hmm. in who in who you are rather than the kind of doubting on stuff so I remember when um and so it's obviously not that much of a younger me but um in 2013 Joan Ruddock who's the MP here stood down and I was a councillor beforehand and so a lot mm-hmm. of people asked me to put myself forward 
And I was really nervous about it because I thought, oh, I'm not that MP material. And then a couple of people who were friends were like, Vicky, you're always encouraging other people to do this. So why don't you stop putting your money where your mouth is? Yeah. And I'm right in thinking that you're an MP now. Yes, yes. So So what does that mean? So what does being an MP mean? And what's the difference between being an MP and a councillor? Because it all blows my mind. Yeah, so when you're a local councillor, um, you know, mm-hmm. councils get, um, uh, you know, you cover a smaller area. So yeah. we have quite a lot of councillors in my constituency. Um, but also it's about the council resources and things that they do. So um, Binns yeah. is an obvious one that everybody knows about. <laughs> but actually some less obvious ones that people don't know about is around social care and around subsidy mm-hmm. with education. Um, and so councils kind of look after those areas of stuff. Now we're in, you know, in parliament. So it's really about, um, the laws of the country, the budgets of the country in terms of the things that we debate there. Um, but also we do a lot of work, um, in the local constituency as well. So I work closely with the council. I'm very lucky. I've got a labor council, um, yeah. But also, um, you know, I do um, surgeries, so it's not where I'm operating on somebody. <laughs> speak to me about the problems and the challenges that they've got. And we try and, you know, work with them to go and resolve them. That's kind of the mm-hmm. shortest way that I can kind of say what we yeah. do. Gosh, there's so there's so much that goes into that job that you don't really think about. And it must involve meeting so many different people all the time. Actually, something that you said earlier that's really like stuck in my brain is that politics and parliament is all about making the laws and the decisions, like the big decisions that affect people's lives when it comes to like money, how the money's spent, how we create laws, how we go about them. And actually, something you said about how laws are being made around disabled people, but there aren't that many disabled politicians has really struck a chord with me. And I was wondering say there is a disabled person listening to this and they do want to get into politics, what would be like your, like a little piece of advice for them? Like, where do they go? Where do they turn to? And and also, interestingly, can they then get involved in politics? Because I was speaking to, I can't remember who I was speaking to, but I was speaking to a person. And this is factual. And is it the House of Lords or the House of Commons where you can't actually, uh, I think it's wherever the speaker is, like my knowledge of politics is very poor and that's embarrassing, but wherever the speaker is, there could never be a disabled speaker because the there is no accessibility into the speaker's chair. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, and I guess it kind of depends on what your disability is in terms of the access mm-hmm. of it. But yeah, yeah, you couldn't be a wheelchair user and access it but this is the reason why things need to change so in the house of lords there's actually quite a a lot of um uh, lords and ladies i think that's the right term who are um, (laughs) who are um disabled and actually they've had to make a lot of adjustments in terms of you know wheelchair users in the house of lords and so forth um Whereas that doesn't quite happen as much in terms of the House of Commons. So I know um, Marsha de Cordova receives large print in terms of all the documents, but actually she had to kind mm-hmm. of fight for that quite a bit at the start to say, this is how I need it. I know I'm only one person compared to yeah. 650, but actually 
you should be providing me this in this way. And now it happens as standard, yeah. like straight away when a statement's handed out or anything, there's an envelope for Marsha and she gets it in the large print. Um, but but that's kind of, you know, in, unless you get more disabled people in, actually they, they don't yeah. have to change stuff at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the reason why, not just in terms of making parliament more accessible, but actually when you're considering laws and, and you know, certain changes, like yeah. one of the things that baffles me is we have a system to support disabled people into work, access to work, and it isn't in mm-hmm. accessible formats. Like, <laughs> like, just the irony of it. Yeah, and I think that's it, isn't it? That there's so much irony that surrounds accessibility. And and you're right, if, if nobody's there, then they don't have to change anything. And that's that's difficult, isn't it? Because actually, traditionally, and this is not like new news but actually disabled people haven't necessarily been welcomed in society so no wonder disabled people don't feel welcome in parliament or or in political roles because actually like you said it it's a battle actually because you're battling for your own access needs but then you're also battling for the access needs of, of everybody else in that job and and actually that must be quite tiring because you're not just taking on your own self you're taking on the the needs and the wants of all the other people behind you and like your constituencies and and actually just generally in the in the sense of the country yeah and you I actually just realized I didn't quite answer all of that question you asked me what um what advice (laughs) I'd give people about putting themselves forward um Mm -hmm. I and I think um you know in the Labour Party you can get involved in in the Labour Party and you can kind of read the rules of how long you need to be a member and kind of bits and bobs like that in terms of just knowing that stuff. But then they just keep getting involved and saying, actually, I, um, you know, I need this reasonable adjustment or this accommodation that's different and, and just, you know, kind of challenging on certain things. So one of the things that we never did before is when we organize um, events or fundraisers, um, we'd always ask people if they've got any special dietary stuff, but we didn't ask yeah. people if they had any reasonable adjustments. And then I realised actually not everybody knows what reasonable adjustments mean. So actually, you know, yeah. is, is there anything that will make this event more, you know, comfortable for you that we can put in place mm. to ensure that's better? And I think when you know, kind of. You know, that process will educate people around you, but also yeah. it will then get the support in place that you need. So, um, you know, if you go in, so one of the things we do is go door knocking, but actually if that's problematic, we also do phone banking. So making sure mm-hmm. that there's phone banking sessions organised, you know, there's different there's different things that can happen and you can get more and more involved. And I think just keep pushing yourself to the next level, you know, get that experience right now to this experience, right now onto the council. Uh, I've been elected to the council and the building is not accessible. And, you know, I don't know whether or not made up building is accessible or not, but we can all hazard a guess it probably isn't. It probably isn't, let's be fair. (laughs) And then just keep keep kind of challenging. And even though, you know, I, I get it, like it's hard work doing that but every Mm -hmm. one of those um you know movements forward 
make it that much more easier for those that come next. Um, and yeah. we need to keep, you know, keep doing that and not be, um, you know, put off, but realize that even if everything's not achieved perfect for you, you've made a huge difference for those that come in the future. I think there's a lot to be said for putting your hand behind you and helping other people up. And I feel like that's very much what happens politically. <coughs> Sorry, that cough was brewing for such a long time and I was trying to really keep it in. <laughs> I need to edit that out because nobody needs to hear like that snippet either. <laughs> I like to think that if at any point in time we've gone through hardship, if we can notice something positive about ourselves through that period of time like this is very much in hindsight not necessarily in the moment but it means that actually you've grown and you've progressed and you've learned something about yourself and I was wondering for you through any hardship that you've had is there a particular positive trait about yourself that when you look back you're actually very proud of yeah I I actually saw this in your question briefing and I I was kind of thinking about one of the things that it's quite hard to say something positive about yourself right because it's quite embarrassing <laughs> it is but this is why I, I tell you why I like to to ask this question and it's because as disabled people we very very rarely look at the positive traits that we have about ourselves and we very rarely feel safe enough to to do it right because I don't think disabled people are given time and space to just be themselves without their disability and that means that you know, we all go through hardship, but it also means that nine times out of 10, we've also learned something from this hardship. And I like to get people to look back at something positive about themselves because A, it shows that you're human, but also it's giving you that time and space to realise that you're so much more than than what the outside world can perceive you as. Yeah. I mean, I think kind of with all of the different like woes that have gone on at certain times in my life, um, mm-hmm. I like to think that I'm quite empathetic and that I can connect and listen to people. And actually, one of the things for kind of politicians I find that a lot do too much of is we do too much of the talking and not enough of the listening. Um, And I Mm -hmm. think it's really important to listen. And it's not just like, you know, oh, I'm listening and nodding, but actually really listen and take in what somebody's saying and think about it and think what you can do. And I think, um, you know, having that empathy is really important in terms of engaging and also getting people's trust because let's be honest um politicians are less popular than estate agents (laughs) 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 and um uh, you know but managing to get people to know that you genuinely do want to make a difference and and it matters in terms of getting people's trust but it also matters in terms of saying to people you know you can definitely do this in the future and don't be Mm -hmm. afraid to go for it um because you know representation matters um yeah yeah representation really does matter and I think it's something that we're noticing more and more of particularly for disabled people how important it is to have them in media so obviously media and politics are very very different and I'm talking about like tv shows and films and and to be able to see yourself represented on like a bog standard tv show is is actually such a warming feeling because when I was little disabled people were not on tv like that did not happen and so you're right because representation does matter and that also includes politics 
because if people aren't represented where their decisions are being made then they're not going to be thought about yeah definitely i like to ask everybody about weird questions that they get around their disability and actually i was wondering with rheumatoid arthritis is there is there weird questions that you get no most people don't realize unless i you know tell them um uh-huh so so now i'm trying to think no i don't i don't know <laughs> no and and because most people don't know the difference between it and other arthritis um yeah they just think that you're creaky joints that's that's their first thought yeah yeah i think so i think that this conversation has actually been really invaluable because i personally have learned a lot about politics but equally everything that you said has all kind of revolved around representation and actually how disabled people need to be in these spaces because if they're not decisions are going to be made about them without them and and as we all know we're all a big fan of the phrase nothing about us without us and I really want to say thank you for taking the time out of your day to come on this podcast because you're the first you're the first politician I've interviewed and I feel very proud of myself because I've kept up and that makes me feel good (laughs) (laughs) I only have one final question for you and that is Vicky are you disabled and proud absolutely (laughs) I, like I said, I really love this conversation because I think I've learned a lot from it and it's been a really interesting one, particularly surrounding politics, because obviously that is what you do. So thank you so much for coming on and like giving your advice and sharing like the knowledge that you have, because actually it's been invaluable. No, thank you for having us on. It's been really nice. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disabled and Proud. If you've enjoyed the show, then please give it some love by leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. It really helps us to reach more and more people each week. Plus, if you've got a particular highlight, then I'd absolutely love to hear it. Tag me on your Insta stories at Disabled and Proud Podcast.